Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Donald Trump. We're going to do that today. Conrad Black, he's got a new book. He joins us to talk about that book, Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. Well, we've talked to Conrad before, but this is a very uh, important day because of this book. And I think it's one of the best books, maybe the best book written about Donald Trump. Yeah, I think it is. We'll also speak with Joseph Tartakovsky. Joe, or Joey as I know him, is the author of The Lives of the Constitution, Ten Exceptional Minds That Shaped America's Supreme Law. We'll talk about some stories, perhaps unknown to some of you, behind the Constitution and the struggle over our supreme law from its beginnings to the present day. All right, let me get a few things off my chest, uh, some lighthearted, some uh, heavy-hearted. <laughs> um, odds and ends, Claude, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. First okay, of all, okay. a joke. Okay. Let me get this right, because I'm translating it from a version I heard which needed some work. So <laughs> uh, the president rescues, not rescues, but goes to Andrews and uh, greets uh, the three people who were in prison in North Korea. All right. And uh, they've been in prison for a while. And he greets them, shakes their hand, and as they're walking away, one turns to the other and says, why is the host of Celebrity Apprentice meeting us <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not bad. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good one. That's fine. That's they've good. been in jail. You right. know, they right. know. They right. can't watch TV. They don't know about the American election. Right. <laughs> All right. Speaking speaking of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Everybody's saying, okay, it's all off now because North Korea said they're going to put on hold their talks with South Korea because of, uh, you know, military exercises. Well, these military exercises aren't any more significant than earlier ones. It's just a signal from North Korea that it's not going to be taken for granted. The summit's not off. Right. Let me just say that. Maybe off, maybe. But if it, if it what's going on, I think, is pressure from China to North Korea. And I think China's feeling a little emboldened. Uh, for some reason, and this is one thing, and you've heard me defend Donald Trump. I don't understand the ZTE thing, Claude. This Chinese company, which has got lost right. seventy five thousand workers because of some parts from the U.S., and so we're going to help them out. And so people are saying, you know, make China great again is the goal of the Trump administration. You know, but Gordon Chang, who has been on this podcast many times, has said, you know, China maybe uh, probed a weakness here and pushed pushed back against President Trump a little, and he might have yielded. I, I'm not prepared to say that yet, but maybe. And in so yielding, revealed it's some vulnerability, which maybe the North Koreans are trying to exploit here. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It, it's too soon to tell. Too soon to tell. Too early to tell. It could just be a blip. Um, what bothers me is the arrogance of the press, of course, again, saying North Korea reverts to form, which, you know, the president should have been familiar with. The president is familiar with it, and he's been right. saying all along... Every time I have heard him, he has said, this may work, this may not work. He said it can go wrong, and I can walk away from the table. Who knows? But at least we're talking about getting at the table. Exactly, exactly right. Uh, I have a a piece I uh, just sent you. You could put it up on the website about teachers going on strike. Right. This does not help Mm -hmm. their cause. It's one of the worst things they can do. Uh, Maybe it'll help in some places get what they want, you know, more money. Uh, But in a lot of places, it will just hurt them. They won't get what they want, and they hurt themselves every time they go on strike. They excerpted part of my article uh, and highlighted that, you know, I said when coal miners go on strike, they lay down their shovels. When teachers go down on strike, uh, you know, they lay down their lecture notes and students lay down their minds. Mm -hmm. By the way, I feel the same way about student strikes. You know, why would you leave school, you know? Why would you leave school? Um, get smarter. You know, if, if you want to strike or you want to protest, you want to march, go on a Saturday. Right. But get your schoolwork done. The teacher strike thing is terrible. Anyway, the article's up. You can look at it. Under commencements. By the way, all people have to do is uh, like your Facebook page because it's yeah. going to be on your Facebook page and follow you on Twitter. We'll post it there. Uh a guy named uh, Sam Leith, Life, uh, for the Financial Times of London, has been following commencement addresses, God bless him. And he really takes apart Tim Cook, who's the Apple CEO, right. as giving a very conventional commencement speak. This, I thought, was the highlight of the, of the notion uh, of, his, uh, of his criticism. Quote, uh, Tim Cook, I've learned the greatest challenge of life is knowing when to break with conventional wisdom. Close quote. He affirmed conventionally. <laughs> Let me read it again. I've learned the greatest challenge of life is knowing when to break with conventional wisdom. He affirmed conventionally. I mean, they all say that. They all mm-hmm. say that. 
Uh, and then this one was in his speech. I can't believe people are still saying this. So say goodbye to Act 1 of your life and then quickly look forward. Act 2 begins today. It's your turn to reach out and take the baton. Oh, yeah, Lord. I heard that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, how many million times? Make a self-deprecating <laughs> joke. Stress the moment in time. Invoke honored predecessors. In this case, at Duke, Steve Jobs, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. Look backwards, then forwards. Use fine, fuzzy-sounding words. Passion, vision, challenge, courage, change, empower, live your life to the fullest. That time is now. How about this one? He says this is the worst thing to possibly say. Um, live each day like it's your last day on earth. No. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, you're going to set up for a bad tomorrow. That's crazy. <laughs> okay, Duke graduates, you should be the last people to accept the world as it is, and you should be the first to change it. Well, you know, they always say the world is in such terrible shape, and you know, unless the graduating class steps up to it, the world's going to hell. I mean, I don't, you know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> if they were saying that, somebody said that to the generation of baby boomers, they sure didn't make the world better. Right. Made it worse. And that's always, it's time, it's time, and fearless, fearless. Anyway, great job. Sam Leith, uh, Financial Times of London. On a more sober note, I note the passing of Tom Wolfe. You may remember, Claude, we had him on the radio show for his book, Charlotte Simmons. Sure. Mm -hmm. He is the great author of The Right Stuff. He wrote that book a long time ago. Made a movie out of it. Um, brilliant social critic. Brilliant. Brilliant. One of the best ever. Uh, wore the telltale white suit. Mm -hmm. uh, lived in New York. Was from the South. From uh, Virginia, I believe. Bonfire of the Vanities is his book. Um, the Right Stuff I mentioned, A Man in Full. Uh, I, I think I read everything he's written. And uh, he could really take down uh, stuff and um, just you know put words into the vocabulary that um, are too many to mention. But he... Um, he, uh, he he had a great influence on my thinking, and uh, we will we will miss him. Conservative in uh, in orientation and thinking. Uh, I discuss with Conrad Black coming up uh, uh, the exchange I had with George Will. Um, you saw it, Claude. Um, yeah, I want to talk about that. There's this whole thing with uh, <laughs> with you guys on this, right? George Will just mercilessly attacked um, Mike Pence mm -hmm. and uh, just. Tell them, call them an awful person, worst person in government. Really, really, the worst person in government. Really, lick spittle, boot licking, you know, um, healing and bowing and scraping, and it's just so unfair because Mike Pence is a decent and polite man. Now, Will hates Trump because he's brash and vulgar. And uh, well, if you hate brash right. and vulgar, you got to like Mike Pence. Yeah, and even if you don't, you wouldn't say you don't in a brash and vulgar way. <laughs> Maybe you could put a link up to Will's piece and then my piece sure. in response. Yes. I'd love to know what people think about it because I used a lot of big words in there, just like <laughs> oh, George Will uses, and I used a lot of big words in there. Anyway, um, I know George. I like George. Um, he's been good to me. He's done me more than one good turn and um, written columns about my work, and um, he's a neighbor. Uh, I don't know if I call him a friend, more than an acquaintance. And I, you know, I've learned from like all of us have, but this is just a dyspeptic piece. I'm just really, really disappointed, uh, really disappointed. We are at the one year anniversary of Bob Mueller's investigation. And I would say there's not much to show for it, but I, I want to make a larger point on partisan point. At one year, you will hear a lot of us conservatives saying there's not much to show. Some will say there's nothing to show and it's turning against Mueller. If you turn on the liberal channels, MSNBC, CNN, they will say there's so much to show and so much coming. There's indictments and guilty pleas, and the and the thing just keeps getting you know bigger and bigger. I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't see that. But you want to talk about the great divide in our country? That's where our great uh, great divide is. Uh, Claude, those are a few things I'm thinking about. You thinking about anything you want to talk about? We did get an email from Vincent. Uh, so yeah. Vincent in yeah. Delray Beach, Florida. Every Everyone's so, um, I guess, in awe of the fact that you aren't uh, into baseball. Because, you know, you talked about can't wait till football season comes. So he says, Bill, I'm puzzled that an all-American apple pie and motherhood guy. I'm not sure what motherhood guy means. But uh, like Bill Bennett bemoans the springtime as devoid of any sports enthusiasm. Uh, have you no regard for the Ameri the great American pastime? Uh, inquiring minds need to know. He's also a devoted podcast follower. So let's know what is it about baseball? You know, like, well, my youth, um, think of Justice Holmes. In my youth, our hearts were touched with fire. We grew up in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, all the games were day games. My brother and I, Uncle Bob, mm -hmm. Clinton's lawyer, we used to get out of school and run up to Ebbets Field where the Dodgers were playing. Nice. 
and we get in the seventh inning. They weren't, you know, doing the cards weren't checking anymore. There's no security in those days anyway. And we get in the seventh inning and watch the end of the game. And when the games were over, who was our friend in Delray? What's his name, George? Uh, Vince. Vince. Or Vin, ha- Vinson. He goes Vin. by, yeah. We had postcards with our address on them, Bill Bennett, 350 Parkside Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. And on the back it said, autograph, please. And as the players came out, you'd hand them the cards. <laughs> they'd put them in their pocket. When they got home, they'd sign them and put them in the mailbox. I'll get out of here. Yeah, penny okay. postcards, three-set postcards, whatever they were. And uh, my brother got a collection of them, put them in a frame, and it's up in his legal office today, law office today. Oh, wow. But it's worth Padres, a lot of money. Johnny Padres, Sandy Koufax, mm-hmm. Gil Hodges, go. Duke wow. Snyder, Jackie Robinson. <laughs> Come on. There you go. So I probably went to 200 games in the course of my life. So you're done with what you're saying. The, well, the day the music died. It oh. wasn't when Buddy Holly died, which was another horrible day. Mm-hmm. But the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. Oh, right. And instead of the guys you could walk up to and hand a postcard, they've got portfolios and managers and PRs and consultants. And now, you know, you want a signature, you got to pay for it. Right. <laughs> it just changed. One. That's strike one, as okay. we say in baseball. Okay? <laughs> yeah, strike one. Strike two. People like George Will, who love baseball, and other people who love baseball, right? Yes. Cite the history of baseball. Not since. You know, greatest hitter since Ty Cobb. History is important. What happens if you're writing the history of the United States and all of a sudden history stops for a year? They had a strike. They went on strike. Like the teachers. Our baseball fans would argue worse. And so they they broke history. Right. They broke history. Mm-hmm can't have 30 years of continue oops not continuous baseball so that was selfish but that's part of the you know portfolio management and all that big deal stuff yeah sure became impressed with themselves and then third strike three i can't believe they've done this strike three they've slowed down the game the game is slow right yes uh, actually most of the i believe this is true baseball statistician can find out what in 1952 53 54 when we were 51, 53, 54, when my brother and I were going to those games. I believe, I mean, are you sitting down? Carl? I am. I am. Most of the pitchers who started the game finished the game. <laughs> right. I would have fallen Does that down. ever happen I, now? I see it. Does uh, it ever har- happen now? Hardly ever. It's actually celebrated when it happens, if someone pitches a complete game. It's like a no-hitter. Yeah. A complete game. Wow. I mean, okay. maybe you take the guy out in the seventh, mm-hmm. you know, if he was tiring. But uh, it is so slow. Maybe the next side-by-side comparison uh, uh, op-ed or column you and uh, Mr. Will could do would be about baseball. Well, I had this discussion (laughs) with him at dinner. Right. (laughs) In which I tried to impress upon him the superiority of college football to Major League Baseball. They're supposed to be trying to implement a pitch clock now. So, Well, they haven't started. I think they're doing some testing in minor leagues and stuff like that. They're trying to speed the game up. It's terrible. I mean, can I make some more enemies? Sure. Yeah. Might as well take up golf. Oh, you no, no. You want to be slow? Slow, <laughs> slow. We have a house in North Carolina. A lot of people play golf. They're mm-hmm. trying to get me out there. So I don't I don't have five hours to spare. Yeah, I couldn't imagine you Walking playing. around yeah. the greens. Yeah. Walking around. Not enough action for you. You're a man of action. The only thing about the golf course here is it's got alligators. There could be so. some action there, running from the gators. You get too close to them. Yeah, I saw, some, I, when I was be, down there, I saw could be, yeah. could be some action there. <laughs> Nicely stated, understated. Yeah, there you go. But, um, no, I like fast moving. I, I was spoiled mm-hmm. on lacrosse. My boys were both lacrosse players. One of them, All-American lacrosse player. And, um, you know, I, I was spoiled. It's a great fast game. I don't understand it. I still don't understand it. <laughs> seen 150 games, and I still don't understand the rules. <laughs> Cross-checking offside. I don't know. I don't get it. It moves, and it's interesting. So people have said hockey, ice hockey. Right. Can't do it. Yeah, because that's plenty of action. And by the way, the playoffs, man, I mean, playoff hockey is pretty interesting. Can't do it. Because of the playoffs. Really? Can't do it. Any particular reason why? 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 Can't see the puck. Oh. (laughs) Too old. Can't see (laughs) the puck. I'm just, these guys are just, just, you know, taking their sticks to air, as far as I can tell. Oh, it's in. It is where? Where the heck is it? It does move fast. I can't see it. (laughs) All right, so... I don't know if we. Well, have there you go, Vincent. This is nothing sports to watch. Listeners, yeah, yes, no, nothing to watch. No discrimination about baseball. Clearly, I right. put lump it in the same with these other things. But anyway, how how long till college football season? 
Uh, wow. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, end of uh, well, we'll get Phil Steele next month. His edition comes right, out. That's June and July. When we right. talk to Phil Steele, that means August you know, is it's coming. Pretty much, yeah. We're pretty much pretty much got to wait till August. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. It's time to welcome Conrad Black to the show, historian, columnist, and author of the new book, Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. Well, how come? What do you mean, no, like no other? I guess that's that's a pretty obvious answer, but go ahead, please. In what ways is he like no other? Well, like Gus has been very much commented on, of course, he, he didn't come up through the normal political route of holding offices or uh, becoming sufficiently distinguished in a military career that the uh, party grandees of either party went out to recruit him as they as they did with General Eisenhower and um, and and many others before that. And uh, he also is like no other in that he, he built a sort of general state of celebrity about himself and then levered on top of that into uh, straight into the nomination of one of the major parties for, for the presidency r- rather than having a particularly distinguished career that gave him great celebrity in a certain field and then and then he yeah. used that to make himself a candidate and at a relatively high rung on the ladder and take it from there. He, it's, it is absolutely a career path and level of progression and timing of steps that is not like anyone else. He's the wealthiest person to hold the position, the mm-hmm. oldest to be elected for the first time to the mm-hmm. position, mm-hmm. and apart from Wendell Wilkie, the only major party nominee uh, who, who, who never held any or sought any office, elected or unelected, or had a military command, who was even nominated. And, um, and then add to that the fact that he did launch an attack upon the entire political system, not a not a revolutionary one in the sense of an upheaval and a departure from constitutional rules, but urging that everybody, the entire political establishment, effectively be replaced. I mean, even Roosevelt in 1932 didn't ask for that. He just wanted yeah. some reforms. Yeah, let's, yeah, as we're getting into not, not the candidacy, but into the presidency so much, How's the govern the governing? Is he governing like no other? Uh, I think that there it is less marked, and it tends to be uh, less a departure from the past as he settles in. Uh, the atmosphere in the early days, and it was not all his doing, was one that his opponents could somewhat plausibly represent as a bit chaotic. I mean, obviously the administration was full of loyalists to previous administrations that he had debunked, and often the most uh, acidulous and, and indeed often humorous terms. But but the fact is, uh, there clearly was a tremendous amount of unrest within the administration, and you had whole conversations with foreign leaders being given to the media and this sort of thing, and, and uh, it's all settled down a long way from there. Uh, so I, I think once you're installed sitting in the Oval okay. Office, okay. executing the office. Everybody does it a little more similarly than, than how they get there. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a good point. I'd make a distinction, <clears throat> I don't know if you accept it, between governing and behaving. But governing is, yes, more like uh, other presidents. Behaving. And the president himself, while he pioneered this use of social media uh, and was very effective with it in uh, outmaneuvering the great hostility to him in the national media, who were, as he put it, part of the swamp and part of the problem. Uh, his, his use of Twitter has become less controversial in his propensity to, to um, tweet out things or even say things in speeches or offhand remarks that are overheard or reported that, that are, by conventional terms, out, outlandish or outrageous. That tendency has declined. So I think we're getting a, a gradual settling down of the atmosphere. But uh, is, and is that's accompanied, ten- I, I suppose, on the on the legal investigative side, too. The, the, the whole world was on the edge of their chairs a year ago, waiting for yeah. fantastic revelations that would show him to be a, an absolute poltroon and an imposter. Uh, in that office, uh, completely tainted with illegal acts, and all practically all of that has evaporated, and and those under suspicion are chiefly now his accusers. Yeah, it, it, is it getting used to him? I mean, I'm back to the first point. I, I Calm think down. I think that. some of it's getting I, used to it, right? I, I think so. And and him, I don't want to sound patronizing here, but him him getting used to the position too. I mean, yeah, it, sure. 
Sure. Uh, if somebody's easing like, into say, it, and their folks are easing into him, right? I mean, yeah, and the, and then the and in, in a way, his more endearing qualities are coming out. I mean, you can see that he is, and the public can see that he is actually a, a kind of good guy and an entertaining person, and so on, and, and not just a monster. And and as you say, it's a it's a process of him looking. I mean, I hate to use such cliches, but he looks and sounds more like a president all the time. I mean, when you see him, both arms outstretched towards the edge of the podium in front yeah. of him, bearing the seal of his office, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he doesn't look an implausible person to be in that position. That's, no. that's, that's right. That's right. For the critic's point of view, is that old story <clears throat> true about the guys on the island that was buzzed? They were being buzzed by the Japanese every day. 30 days in a row, and on the 31st day, they didn't come, and the guys got nervous. <laughs> yeah. Because you get used to, hey, what's wrong? You know, yeah. Why aren't we being flacked? Here? I don't know. Yeah. But there, I think there is a fair amount of that. Plus, I think an important point is, you know, people are, are, are realizing that uh, some of the more outlandish stuff, you know, which, which should be dismissed, they do dismiss, and now see that it's noise. And what really matters is the program, and the program is moving. Yeah. Okay. And look, I mean, another, I mean, another sort of perspective on the same thing. I think is my impression is that since he had attacked the Congressional Republican Party in terms scarcely less uh, generous than than his reflections on the Democrats, when he was inaugurated, McConnell and Ryan were sitting on their hands. I don't think they lifted a finger to help, him other than. McConnell at a desultory pace got most of his nominees for high, well, for cabinet positions confirmed. But uh, you, you see now the never Trumpers are not running for election. You know, Flake and Corker and mm-hmm. Ryan and others. And, and, uh, and, and the Congressional Party is lined up pretty well behind him trying to get his program through. So, you know, he, he won the nomination. He won the election. He's now set himself pretty well at the head of the Republicans uh, at, the, yep. at the Capitol. And, you know, he, he, he does have a method, and he is a very thorough man. I mean, he's over physically visiting the Capitol yesterday, going over a lengthy agenda with the congressional leaders there. And, and um, you know, he's a pretty persuasive man when he gets at it. And, he's, and, and of course, he is the president. Yep. Yep. We're talking to Conrad Black. The book is a do- is Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. I read it. I blurbed it. It's a really good book, and you should buy it. Um, I, I had a thought while you were talking about it, and it's very, you did it very vividly uh, in your words uh, when he's there at the podium with the presidential seal with the arms outstretched. Um, yes, presidential. Has he there, thereby as well diminished previous presidents? I would say yes, back to, but not including Reagan. I, uh, that- I, I would say uh, yes, but w- with the same with the same limit going back. I, I think, if anything, he he is rather subtly selling himself or being sold by his supporters, uh, the more historically minded of them, as something of a continuator of Reagan. Uh, nobody wants to say anything disrespectful of the senior Mr. Bush. He's a very elderly man now, and not well, and has just lost his wife, and, and is you know a much admired. A former war hero in many high offices, but but the, the leaving that out of it, the general performance of the Clinton administration, George W. Bush administration, Obama administration. I, I think, as far as I know, this president is not deliberately contrasting himself with them, other than in North Korea. Uh, yeah, and that's still up in the air. Uh, I, I think people are getting the message that far more important than the. This president's tendency to, as he calls it, truthful hyperbole. I mean, how truthful hyperbole is is open to discussion at times. But uh, I, I mean, that's there. He is a bit of a he is a bit of a, a carnival barker in a way because that's his background in business and it's always worked for him. But far more important than that, and starting to really be clearly seen as taking precedence over it is this fact that he is the in all my time and i go back to eisenhower the most faithful president at delivering what he promised to do yep, 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 yep. and then let the chips fall where they may yep, i said absolutely. i'd pull out of the climate accord we're out of it you know i said we'd and move the embassy in israel we moved it yep. and 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 so forth no absolutely donald j trump a president like no other 
Conrad Black is the author and our guest, uh, our guest today. Absolutely. I stand corrected too and feel bad about it because I, I wrote a three volume history of the United States, which I said you know, toward the end that George Herbert Walker Bush was, is better than, than rated. Um, uh, actually a pretty good president. But I agreed to you 100% the Clinton, uh, presidency and the two George W's and the Obamas. That's where I think the diminishment is taking place. I think my guess is that's where it's, that's where it's targeted to. That's what he's, that's what he's thinking of. I think the deficiencies of the elder President Bush, and again, I, I hate to sound so self-important here, but uh, we're more uh, on the political side as a party leader. He should not have allowed yeah. his party to be split by peril. I, I think in general he's yeah. thought to be uh, an above average president. And in any case, uh, an officer and a gentleman and a man who served the yes, country sir. all his life. Yeah, I served under both uh, President Reagan and President uh, George Herbert Walker. And, um, yeah, and a terrific human being. I, I, I just wish, you've heard this before, that, uh, you know, more of his uh, sort of spontaneous comments uh, rather than the, the rehearsed ones were what the public got to hear. We were out at a dedication of a police memorial uh, in Portland, and it was uh, in the morning. And he and I were going to jog. Um, he very considerately jogged slow for me. He, 20 years my senior, <laughs> said, well, go at your pace, Bill. <laughs> uh, I was director of drug policy. Then I went over to his room, and they wouldn't let him go, Secret Service, because uh, there was demonstration in the street. People were burning flags. And he looked out, and he said, he said, I, you know, I don't lose my temper a lot, but when I see the flag burning, I just can't stand it. And I thought, man, this is what we need to hear more uh, yeah. from. You know, this is this is the honest sentiments. Anyway, enough. I, I, I thought he lost a lot. You see, I didn't know him well then, but yeah. I, I knew him a bit because he he used to come up here as vice president sometimes. And, I, sure. and indeed, I met him in Washington in that role. But I, I thought he lost a lot when Lee Atwater died. He he was the real yep. manager yep. politically. I think. Yep, yep, yep. Can I tell you quickly that water story? I was on the Please. I was on the Larry King show. Uh, this is when I was drug czar, and some guy called in and said, uh, "You know what I'd do? With those drug dealers, I'd uh, I'd cut their heads off. I'd just cut their heads off." Larry King slammed down the phone, and said, "You know, crank caller." I said, "No, wait a minute. He's got a point. He's got a point." I said, "If you see some guy giving these things to your kid, what's your instinct?" Well, the next day, I was all over the papers, cartoons, me with a guillotine, you know, yes, pulling the rope. I can imagine. All that. right, so I was getting all this. I got a call, you know, late morning, Lee Atwater. said, you want to be president someday? <laughs> he said, we just started your campaign. Anyway, he was he was not a fool-around guy. He was straightforward. I agree, I, you. I agree with I, you. I, I, I thought you sort of like Chuck Colson, but a lot smarter, you know, and smoother. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. He was very, very good. Let's let's talk about the economy. You said something in a, in your most recent uh, column um, that intrigued me, uh, because what we're talking about employment, uh, unemployment is down, record numbers, uh, the economy is moving. You you mentioned, and uh, this isn't a blemish on Trump, but I'm just curious if your thinking is like mine, the workforce participation. Uh, I, I think you, you hesitated there. Not so good, right? What, what's the concern there? Well, as I understand it, it's just under 63%, which right. is, and, and in, on the latest numbers, one of the reasons the unemployment rate went down was that workforce participation went down by some 600,000. Uh, I mean, we're, we're obviously in an era where I think, if not for the first time, certainly to a greater extent than ever before, uh, technological innovation is creating unemployment rather than employment. Uh -huh. And 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 uh, as a society, as a civilization in the West, all over the West, we've made an immense effort to keep as many people as we can in university and to yeah. load as many people as we can into service industries. Uh, but but they don't add value. A lot of them, and and the. Uh, this this business of trying to get back to the Reagan era, where you're where you're increasing productivity by introducing technological advances as quickly as you can, and at the same time, while a lot of jobs are rendered redundant, as the British say, even more, great many more new jobs are created. So you're getting steeply rising productivity levels, increasing workforce participation levels, and declining unemployment without inflation. And that was the 
I mean, you know, that was the dream world of the last six years of Reagan, and um, and and you'd had it at times in the past, but uh, you had a fair bit of it in Eisenhower's time, for example. But the the there's um, just that one missing ingredient here. I mean, how how are we going to occupy all these people if uh, if these astounding new concepts like artificial intelligence and so on? are essentially telling us in large numbers that we're now surplus to requirements and we can go and sit in a bath chair somewhere and watch the butterflies or something. I mean, the, 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 there's, there's a sign of that. And Now, Reagan is... Uh, I'm sorry, you've got me going down this Reagan thing. No, Trump, uh, 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 you know, Trump is, whether he thinks of it in these terms, I wouldn't know, but he is attacking unemployment from every side. I mean, he is trying to repatriate jobs. He, he is trying to make the manufacturing sector more viable by, by um, creating conditions for it rather than simple outright protectionism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, it, it, he knows that a great part of economics, as, as Roosevelt knew, is psychology. And if you get people thinking positively, they'll invest more and hire more people and so on. And he's working on all of that. And, uh, uh, but that's the one part. He's, I think he's got a very, very good yeah. record that, that he'll yeah. do well with in the midterms. But that's the one part of it that's still a bit sluggish. But it was yeah. always going to be the last to move. Yeah, I think there are some other things too. I, I, I do I do observe that uh, what you just said about the president is true. At his, I've had uh, dined with the, both Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos and the Secretary of Labor uh, Mr. Costa, and they're uh, both very good, aren't they? I've never met yeah. them, but I like them on television. Yeah, and the one thing that uh, you know that's that's back in style, good for us after many years of neglect and putting it in second rate status, is what's called career and technical education. You know, <clears throat> we drove the vocational schools into disrepute, and uh, and now we find out we don't have any welders and can hire. Welders. We got far too many lawyers, far too yeah. many consultants, yeah, 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 and not yeah, enough, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, plumbers and electricians. Too many communications majors and journalism majors, if I may say so. I don't think I'm offending you uh, by saying that. I mean, you know, uh, and of course the teachers' unions, if you majored in English literature, you can't teach English in school. Only if you majored majored in education can you teach English. Well, and we we had a famous publisher in Quebec years ago, not so many years ago, said we are almost to the point where we have twice as many students studying the anthropology of native people as we have native people. <laughs> About two for each one. <laughs> and, right. and, and, you know, I'm not saying those areas right. should be no. ignored. I mean, no, neither no, you nor no. I are know-nothings or philistines. We want a scholarly society. But but uh, I agree with you. I see. I think that as a society, as a civilization, we got into some sort of snobbish uh, notion thirty or forty years ago that blue collar work was bet. was you, you know unfashionable and, and, and was distasteful, and the result is that uh, you know if you need a plumber, which we all do sometimes at you know eleven o'clock at night, you got to you know you got to pay him a thousand bucks to come over and you know do what needs to be done. And and, it's and, nice uh, to be able to outsource your plumbing problems, but you can't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, unless really you're one of these guys that I can't stand who <laughs> can fix everything in his own eyes, so that's right. Really that's right. Right. But but the uh, and and but, but if we had degrees in plumbing or something, I mean, you have to call them something a little different, you know. Uh, but uh, but you know that, that would make some sense. But uh, and, and not just the, the trade schools. That that is certainly true. But um, uh, and and obviously the, the state can't simply tell people what they should do for a career. But there are there are ways of, of aligning public policy behind the free market, so that the fact that we have too many lawyers and not enough plumbers is addressed by the free market without everyone getting the idea that we're going backwards as society and learned professions are giving way to, to you know to people who deal in the mundane world of the plumber essential yeah. though it is yeah you know uh, I think there's something else too we'll save it for another day because I want to get back to the book but we have a, we have a young male problem here in this country a uh, serious problem that's partly yeah there's externalities like the technology and you know artificial intelligence but there's there's this opioid thing there's this weird prolongation of adolescence which you've hinted at which it, there's this you know say video game a business for men in their 20s 25 30 we had a three-hour show once and we started talking about video games that's that took over the show with people calling um, women particularly saying, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm going with this guy and I'm breaking up with him. He has no time for me. It's only video games. Only, video game only is, is a piece of it. But there's this, uh, I mean, part of it is the whole ge- attack on gender. But uh, the notion that males should be uh, thinking about work and be responsible and take up their responsibilities and get married and buy a house, you know, that's kind of not not so oh, come around. Pretty corny. That's pretty, pretty corny. corny right, right. I know. Anyway, that's for another day. Let's go back to the book. Hey, you know, your hey, book. To what extent do you fear there being, and I, I agree, I, but to what yeah. extent do you fear there being emasculated? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the great things about studying Latin is, um, you know, those those words are so clear in their, in their gender. You know? Patria potestas. Yes, sir. And, uh, oh, no, the... Um, no, the demasculinization is uh, full full bore in the, in the schools. Well, and, there, uh, there will have to be a backlash to it. We have two sexes, and their functions are quite clear biologically, and they oh, yeah. connote oh. certain consequences sociologically, and we can't just ignore all of it. Conrad, how much trouble do you want? I mean, you're defending Trump, and you want this, too? You really want to do this, too? <laughs> yeah, look, no, I, I, I'm not... No. No woman can claim that I'm a misogynist. The reverse is true. I know. Okay. I know. I know. Uh, your book, um, you know, reminded me some, not in not in, in substance, but in, in, in a lot of the course of it of the old T- Teddy White books, The Making of the President. You remember yeah, those Yeah, books? he, he I, I, I don't want to sound like an old dowager, but he was more of a journalist than him. I, uh, no, that's right. But a lot of your book, the only point I want to make is a lot of the book for the readers is the making of this president. Is, is yes, that's, that's a good point, yeah. The, well, the that's course. all we've got. He's only been there a year. Yeah. Right, the course. And it's really interesting. What were the critical turning points for, for Trump? What were the What were the moments, other than going back to election night and some of the video of the media then, my favorite thing to go back to is the beginning where he was a 1% or 2% chance. What got those chances up to 20, 30, 50, 70? Yeah, well, you, you remember the, the conventional wisdom and how far he could go inside the Republican primary system. The, the ceiling just kept kept rising. And, and, and uh, you, know, you know, if you start out with 15 candidates, nobody is going to get, you know, more than 25%. But then, you know, then it, it did what, what everyone knows it did. But to me... And this is when I turned to my wife and I said, because, you know, we know him. And we, I must confess, I thought that there might have been an element in it at the beginning of just more brand building. And But I'd known that he'd done a lot of polling over the years and that he did take the subject seriously. It wasn't completely frivolous, but that uh, possibly he, he thought he could, uh, you know, put a toe in the water and see how it went. But And would go a lot better than most people expected, and it wouldn't be an embarrassment to him, but it probably wouldn't end up with him being nominated. That's what I thought at the start. But when I saw the um, the Massachusetts primary, now, of course, that's a very mm-hmm. liberal state. I mm-hmm. believe uh, Mr. Reagan carried it, but he's the only one since Eisenhower, I think. And, uh, I mean, even Nixon didn't get it in, in uh, 72. But the... Um, uh, the with uh, six candidate race. I mean, it, it, they, of course, they are, they're only about thirty-five to forty percent of the of the voters in that state. But uh, but they're still pretty much all liberals in Massachusetts, or, except for maybe members of the Cabot, Lowell, and Lodge families. You know, conservatives in the whole state. But the but with a six candidate race on the Republican side, when Trump took forty-nine percent of the vote, I, I, I said to Barbara, he has touched yeah. he has touched a seam of votes. That, yeah. that, that that hasn't made itself known for some years, yeah. and 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 then in Pennsylvania, where of course, as you know, a strong Republican presidential candidate can carry Pennsylvania, and indeed Herbert Hoover carried it in 1932. It's a little known fact, but uh, you know, an Eisenhower or or Nixon or Reagan can carry Pennsylvania. In in the primaries, you almost always get a much larger number of Democrats outvoted. And on that night, I noted, and, I, and I, again I said uh, to a few people, uh, you know, that it was, a, it was by this point the Republican nomination was not a suspenseful matter, and it wasn't a close race. He, he won, I think, around 15 to 20 points ahead of, uh, I believe, the governor of Ohio was the second candidate. But um, on, on the Democratic side, it was a ding-dong battle between Clinton and Sanders, and the Republican vote was 98% of the Democratic vote. And I said, look, a lot of those working-class people in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia are moving over to the Republican column here. 
I mean, this this could be a very momentous thing. But, I mean, I didn't follow it yeah. that closely, but when I saw that, it was obvious that he, he, you know, that the Republican strategy of getting behind somebody to stop him wasn't going to work because he was running strongly in every region, whether it was, uh, you know, in Iowa or in New Hampshire or in the southern states. He was running strongly everywhere. Yeah. And, and uh, but but it was also clear that he was. It w- I mean, I would have thought between Clinton and Sanders, the Democrats were you know had a menu out there that should attract practically all the traditional voters. Yes, and right. and he That's was right. taking Good a lot point. of votes from them. All right, and now the other question is that I will answer it. You don't have to, but uh, I think yeah, you hinted at it in the book. Moments you're a supporter of Trump. I'm a supporter of Trump. Moments in the campaign where you thought, oh Lord. He's lost it now. Want me to go first? Go ahead. I thought, I thought right from the start, Rosie O'Donnell, when he did that thing with Megyn Kelly, I thought, oh, that's it. Goodbye. That's it. Short tenure there. You One. mean the reference to Rosie or the thing about blood coming in? Yeah, blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought that was too much. It, 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 I thought he, he he bounced back well with, uh, it, it is a sick mind to think that I was referring to menstruation. So yeah, I, I sure. thought he, he covered it, but I, I just hoped he wouldn't. You know, he'd be more careful as the campaign went on. Then I thought that uh, the, the Billy Bush stuff, you know. The, the, well, that, 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 didn't, that didn't look great. I thought, oh, man, that's it. I mean, you're asking the people to take a lot. Boy, I, don't, I just didn't budge anybody. You know, baby budged me because I've been to school too long or something. And I have a PhD. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I think everyone thought it was it was, it was really a day class hey. thing to say. But, but I have to say that... I thought, and this may sound perverse, where I thought that he really seriously showed that he had the quality to lead was when everybody in his party ran for the ran for the tall grass. Uh, the, Mike Pence went silent, you know, like Zachariah in the yep. temple. He, uh, he, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, he couldn't move his, his finger on his, uh, his yeah. uh, you know, his uh, yeah. tweet machine or anything. But the um, and, and Reince Priebus was sort of more or less suggesting it was time for a change of candidate. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and Donald brought in those women and, and had them hold forth about the evils the Clintons had done to them. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he, we, when he sauntered into that debate, just two nights later, I believe, and there was no handshaking, but he, he looked completely unrattled. And I thought he won the debate. Now, the media couldn't I bring too. themselves to admit I that. I but too. I thought he won the debate. I didn't and, think he and, was going to win the debate. Did you? No, I, 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 yeah. I, I said, <clears throat> I mean, to myself, this is the litmus test. But he, he, I yeah, thought was, yeah, that was yeah, yeah, greater yeah. pressure. I, I mean, I've followed, as I'm sure you have, these presidential debates since sure. the Nixon-Kennedy uh, uh, election. And... I mean, I missed a couple of them, but I've seen almost all of them. No one was under such pressure as that. And I thought he handled it brilliantly. Even uh, critical commentators said, well, he has salvaged his campaign. I think think he's come back from uh, complete shambles, as it appeared, to uh, honorable defeat. Well, you see, my theory was if it wasn't a complete shambles, it wasn't necessarily a defeat. Yeah, right. No, you're you're right. You're right. And of course, there again, he was fortunate to have Mrs. Clinton. She couldn't go there, right? That's right. Well, yeah. yeah and he, but he he assisted he the assisted. public very yeah. forcefully in grasping yeah. why she couldn't, you know, yeah. calling her yeah. an enabler. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. The book uh, again, Donald J. Trump, a president like no other, and this is a. When a writer like no other, you will not see the equal of this book in intelligence and wit. And go to your go to your thesaurus. Did you see my exchange with George Will? I did. I thought you were excellent. I thought you handled it with exquisite diplomacy. I, I mean, George is a friend of mine too, but I just don't know what possesses what, him. I, why he would say those things about Mike Pence? I just don't. I, I mean, exactly. You know? I mean, I like you. I went back to his attack on George Bush Senior. I mean, I, I, look, I understand if you don't particularly support a political person like that N- nothing wrong with that but but why suddenly resort to this terrible denigration i mean they don't deserve that i, I mean i don't know the vice president he strikes me as yeah, a no. very honorable competent <laughs> yes. man doing a damn good job yeah i was trying to, i just tried to do two funny things in there one use big words like he did by the yeah, way no you did you, you had I, some hilarious yeah i read a lot of conrad black to, in preparation <laughs> for doing that anyway our, our, our listeners love one, one guy wrote and said 
something very reminiscent of what I'd heard about Bill Buckley. I went to hear Bill Buckley for the first time, and he said, I've decided what my life's aim is. I want to understand what Bill Buckley said next time. <laughs> you know, I'm going to educate myself. But I had a listener who said, I love listening to Conrad Black, and then I go to my dictionary. So. That's very flattering. But they, we, we, uh, you know, I, we knew him well, too, and we had him and Pat out in a cruise in the Mediterranean one year yeah. with another couple who, who were great Scrabble experts. So I thought, Scrabble, this is going to be, this is going to be the worst uh, uh, mismatch since uh, uh, you know Albert Westfall and Sonny Liston or something. You say yeah. a, a thirty second fight. Well, Bill didn't know any words small enough. At the end of the game, he still had no words because he's waiting for a, a word that uh, you know that had <laughs> waiting for you know some word that nobody had ever heard of before that would take all his letters. Oh, that's hilarious! That's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Well, you contributed a lot of the words for my article, and my older son, younger son, who at least got something of a college education, said you can't write against Will without using sesquipedalian. Then you got to use sesquipedalian. So I did. Yeah. yeah well, that was a, that was a nice touch. It was a lovely piece, and I, I just the right tone. It's it's. I mean, George Will is basically a very fine man, and and I agree I with ninety percent of what of he says. Of course. But, but he he's um i don't know he just uh, he just flips sometimes distemper dyspepsia dyspepsia i'm still i'm still on a roll here conrad congratulations on the book donald j trump a president like no other this is a book like no other folks you got to get it we will continue our conversations okay thank you so much Bill. Well, thanks thank for having you. me on and thanks for your help with the book you bet congratulations thank you All right, that was Conrad Black. Check out his new book, Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's switch directions. Let's welcome to the show Joseph Tartakovsky, author of The Lives of the Constitution, 10 Exceptional Minds That Shaped Our Supreme Law. So, um, quiz, who are the 10? The 10. uh, We we start off with with Alexander Hamilton, uh, James Wilson, another founder, but a, a lesser known one. So yeah, undeservedly we'll about, so. We'll talk about him, yeah. Daniel Webster, the, the Massachusetts senator before the Civil War, fought to keep the Union together. Stephen Field, sort of a proto-libertarian justice appointed by Lincoln on the court in the second half of the 19th century. Alexis de Tocqueville and James Bryce, the two Europeans who tried to write the best book on America. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, the, the president before and during the First World War. Ida Wells Barnett a black woman born a slave in Mississippi who became our leading anti-lynching crusader. Robert Jackson, FDR's attorney general and uh, later justice of the Supreme Court. And then Antonin Scalia, the late and great Supreme Court justice. All right, great. Let's uh, let's do it more or less chronologically. Um, James Wilson. I was always a James Wilson fan. Uh, tell our audience why James Wilson deserves more regard and respect. Uh, James Wilson was a Scottish immigrant, and he he came to the country, got involved in revolutionary politics, and then became a, co- a commanding figure in the in the formation of our country. He, he's one of only six men to sign the Declaration and the Constitution, and scholars agree that he is second to Madison in terms of his influence on the Constitution. And sometimes I have my doubts about whether he's not preeminent. Oh, careful. I'm a Madison man, but go ahead. His favorite thing to do in life was to study constitutions, and that made him an eminently valuable person at the convention. He was he spoke more than sure. anyone else other than Governor Morris. He was the, the actual hand that created the architecture, the basic structure of the Constitution, which is three, three first articles. He wrote the phrase, we the people, and after the Constitution was drafted, he gave the first public speech in which a, a framer, a, a member of the Philadelphia Convention, defended the Constitution publicly. It became the most cited document in the entire ratification debate because it just took on all the key arguments against the Constitution and handled them okay. so masterfully. Okay. And then he became a justice on the first court. Well, I certainly won't argue with you that he deserves more attention. I think he deserves a ton of attention. But it's hard to displace Madison, isn't it? I mean, I, he didn't say the most, but he, I would argue, took in the most. He obviously took took those prodigious notes, and uh, sometimes people didn't even know he was there because uh, I remember some one of his biographers said he had the gift of chronic anonymity, but um, he did uh, put a lot of flesh on those bones, right? Yeah, certainly. I wouldn't want to do without either of them. Right. But what's interesting, he's, he, but he's, he's always next to medicine as the most important figure, but in many ways, James Wilson's vision 
better harmonizes with our development as a nation. Just to give you one example, James Wilson fought hard, I mean, almost fanatically for direct elections of senators. He thought that uh, the, the, the elections by state houses was sort of a, a betrayal of the, of the principle of Republican government. And okay. he lost that fight at the convention, but in a way he won it in 1913 with the yeah. 17th Amendment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Madison and most of the framers were scared of, of a powerful president. That was, that was sort of like the, the big concern. Mm-hmm. That was the branch they thought was the most dangerous to liberty. James Wilson was saying that the president should be a man of the people. But nobody talked like that at that time. And that was like a, that was like a, that sounded like a call for a, a demagogue or a tyrant or something. And, but James Wilson thought, no, no, I believe in the character of this people, they'll, they'll, they'll elect, uh, the right people. So he was different than all the other framers in this respect, that either they were guys like Hamilton who wanted strong government but feared, uh, feared the populace as a sort of giant mob, or they were like Jefferson, who feared government and embraced popular rule. But he was unique in combining the two. He wanted strong government and strong popular rule, okay. which makes okay. him, to me, very interesting. All right. That's a, that's a strong case. And again, I, I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm, a fan, I'm a fan of James Wilson. Let's go. I, I want to get through several of these. Hamilton, first of all, excuse me for the uh, presentism, but have you seen the play? I've listened to it. I haven't uh-huh. seen it yet. Did you like? If I sell enough heard? books, if I sell enough books, I may be able to buy a ticket. <laughs> may um, be able to buy a ticket. Well, I, right. I, I did. I listened to. You. I did like it. I liked it yeah. a lot because yeah. I mean, he really tried hard to get history yeah. right. It. A lot of kids are seeing it. It's like it seemed to me like a Parson Weems kind of thing. It yeah. just was more yeah. historical integrity. So I think it's a good if you have hundreds of thousands of kids watching a play that inspires reverence for the founders. That's a good thing. Good. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. Let's. I want to move ahead to because I'm intrigued by one thing in the description of the book, uh, and that's to these two foreigners, Alexis de Tocqueville and James Bryce. Tell us why they're both important. Who's the better uh, at understanding America? Give us a little background on each, and then who's who 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 understands America better, Bryce or Tocqueville? So Bryce came from France in 1831 spent 271 days in the country, and then wrote a book, uh, Democracy in America. You mean Tocqueville? Bryce, uh, to- Tocqueville did, yeah. Oh, sorry, this is, yeah. Uh, to- to- this is Tocqueville. And then Bryce came about 40 years later in the late 19th century, made a few trips, and then wrote a book called The American Commonwealth. And Bryce very deliberately was trying to displace Tocqueville as, as the more accurate expositor of our institutions. They're both marvelous books, very long books. In the end, I, uh, and there was a time when, when Bryce actually rivaled Tocqueville, but uh, Tocqueville has since eclipsed Bryce completely. I think Bryce, I can't, I can't live without Tocqueville, but I think Bryce in the end was actually the more accurate in tracing how our institutions reflect our character. Tocqueville was very good on our culture, but he didn't. He wasn't all that interested in in our, our political mechanics. He didn't talk about po- uh, parties, for instance. And he wasn't all that keen on our constitution as as a subject of study. Uh, he didn't talk about emblems of Americanness like railroads, universities, uh, manufacturing, just the beginnings of industry. That, that 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 sort of capitalist side of America. He thought sort of grubby and uninteresting. So I I think Bryce is the better of the two. If I had to pick. Now, uh, in the uh, in the description of the book, again, folks, the book is The Lives of the Constitution, Ten Exceptional Minds That Shaped America's Supreme Law. Uh, you say, uh, to Tocqueville misunderstood, or the person putting the, the description out says, Tocqueville misunderstood America. What did he misunderstand, what you just, what you just mentioned? So I'll give you, uh, give you some examples. He, as I say, didn't, wasn't all that, he didn't look at, he didn't really sort of compare what he saw on the ground to the Constitution. So, for instance, on the question of what, what they teach about our Constitution, which is the theme of my book, Tocqueville and Bryce both took up the question of why why the Senate was seemed more prestigious of uh, being a senator than being a member of the House. And Tocqueville said, well, it must be because, you know, the Senate is elected by people who are themselves elected, and that gives it sort of a, a cast of dignity and respect. Whereas Bryce was more likely to pull out his copy of the Constitution and say, well, actually, it's because there are far fewer senators, they have a longer duration in office, and they have far greater powers over appointments and foreign affairs. And that's why it's more fun to be a senator. And you okay. see that uh, again and again. Okay, okay. Um, I'm curious about uh, Ida Wells Barnett because uh, 
I think I know who she is. Yeah, I do know who she is. But tell us more about her. So I wanted to show in the book that American constitutional history is not just made by the eminent justices or the great presidents, but that ordinary Americans have played and continue to play a role in our constitutional development. She was, um, as they say, she was born in Mississippi, and the event that changed her life was the murder of her best friend in, in a lynching in Memphis, Tennessee. And it drew her into journalism. She started writing against lynching. She was forced to flee to Chicago. She's, she, by was the black. 18th, she was black. She, she was black. Right, okay. And by the 1880s and 1890s, she was probably the most, she was the most important crusader ever to write on, on lynching. And also she was second to Frederick Douglass in terms of her renown as a black public intellectual. And among the many things she did, um, she brought one of the first lawsuits to, against um, black-only parts of, of a train, sort of like Rosa Parks, but 70 years earlier. She, she pioneered the, the process of going to prisons to interview uh, black men who had been arrested to get their side of the story. And in one of those cases, she, she, she interviewed six black men in, the, in an Arkansas prison after a sort of race riot. And the facts were so bad, like setting their execution date without bothering to set a trial date, that uh, she, she, she got uh, help to get the case sent to the Supreme Court. It was the first uh, in, in, in 1923, and uh, uh, the court made one of its first ever humanitarian interventions against lynching. And the court had, had lifted a finger, and she helped do this. And she was also involved in the suffrage fight. She was a key figure in the Illinois suffrage fight, which is another example of how um, activists helped reshape our Constitution. And what were her dates? What were her years? Uh, 18, she was born in 1862 and died in 1931. Okay, interesting period in American history. Let's go to, I'm really interested in this, Woodrow Wilson. You say 10 exceptional minds. Exceptional mind? I, people are in the mood to vilify him. I know they are at Princeton, uh, where my sons went. Lots of conservatives don't like uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, what's what's exceptional here? Well, yeah, the, the first Woodrow Wilson was a very he's a very interesting guy in the sense that he was uh, before he became president a, a professional scholar of the Constitution for twenty five years, and he wrote a, a number of really interesting reflections. On it. And my take on Wilson is that, um, and I do recognize in the book that his, his stock is pretty low right now. Um, as for as for conservatives, my position on him is that uh, he, need, he certainly need not be our hero, but he shouldn't be a conservative bogeyman because he's been dead for a hundred years, and a lot of the stuff he is blamed for, I don't find that he's actually guilty of. Was he seen as? Was he a supporter of the Klan? That's often said. I don't think he ever joined the Klan. Good words I know to that say about he, them, though, right? Yeah, I don't think we. I think he. I think there's. Well, that's. I think one of the misconceptions. There's this famous supposed incident where he they screened Birth of the Nation at the White House, and there's some quote that Woodrow uh-huh. Wilson supposedly said, but it's now seen as as uh, spurious. Um, okay. But he was. He was pretty bad. He was pretty. He was. He was. He was bad on race in the sense that he was sort of typical of the times. He wasn't. In his in his in his racial politics, he wasn't a southerner, so he wasn't sort of a rabid racist, but he was sort of a a northerner, sort of indifferent to race. He did refuse to speak to black audiences. Um, but he was raised he, as a southerner, wasn't he? Or wasn't his mother or someone southern? Yeah, he was raised in Virginia. His Virginia, father was from Ohio, yeah. but he was ra- yeah, he was raised in Virginia. So his okay. his politics were were bad enough, but also he was the first president, um, the first Democrat from the South after the Civil War. So this was a time when Southerners were riding high in Washington once again. So his, his members of his cabinet were pretty bad. So a number of members of his cabinet were segregated, segregating their their departments, and he he did very little to stop it until the end, where he sort of reversed a little bit. So that that's why his name is getting taken off of buildings. But but here's but here's the thing about Woodrow Wilson and the founders. That's what that's what really gets people about the, uh, on the right is that he he was considered the first to, you know, sort of repudiate the founders. I just find that this was not true. I mean, he, he spoke endlessly in praise of the founders. And what he was trying to do, if we're going to, if you want to understand him as he understood himself, he thought that the, the three-branch system was out of whack and that Congress was far too powerful and the president was far too weak. This is, this is, this is why nobody knows the names of the presidents. I mean, you probably do, but most people don't know that the presidents between, you know, Grant and uh, McKinley, say, mm-hmm. PR. Mm-hmm. 
and he wanted to restore it. So, for instance, people forget that Jefferson stopped the practice of the president going to Congress in person to give speeches. Jefferson thought this was what kings did, inappropriate in America, and he stopped doing it. And for 113 years, no president went to Congress in person. And Wilson was the kind of guy, he had also written a, a five-volume history of America. He said, why, why are we doing this? The Constitution says, commands the president to recommend measures to Congress. It commands the president to give them a State of the Union. And George Washington and John Adams went to Congress. It was good enough for them, so why why do I have to follow Jefferson? So he was and, and, and when he and when he went to Congress for the first time in those after twenty something presidents in nineteen thirteen, Congress was outraged and there were resolutions introduced that this was a violation of the separation of powers and an unconstitutional attempt to influence legislation. So what he was trying to do was restore the, the tradition of Washington over the tradition of Jefferson, which is one example of okay. Uh, okay. why he's sort of like the way the Soviets rehabilitate people, you know, not as as yeah. guilty as charged. That kind okay. of thing. These 10, is there anything they share or knew or believe that is missing today? What, what they all have in common yep. is whether they, they helped write the Constitution or whether they helped amend it or defend it or sometimes even challenge it in ways is that the Constitution was the beacon, that whatever else was, was bad or shameful or cheap in American life, the, the Constitution was the one thing that we all had in common and the one thing that, we, that would see us through crisis after crisis. I hope that remains true. And one of the interesting things about American political culture is that we fight over which party, for instance, displays the greatest fidelity to the Constitution. That's a healthy instinct. They all okay. came from different, I mean, very different okay. backgrounds. But there is this question of, which is, of course, caused, <laughs> uh, makes some, a lot of people a living, but uh, has also animated American history for a long time, which is, <clears throat> and whether you're, you know, of the Scalia view or another view, uh, and Scalia is one of your ten, is that the, the Constitution is subject to interpretation. It is. I mean, it's, it seems to me inevitable that the provisions in the Constitution were were themselves the, the, the product of political fights. They, the, the, the founders resolved many, many things for us, and we, have to, and, and, and we should be grateful. But they didn't resolve everything for us. Sure. And some of the things they left open, I mean, take, take the bank, for instance. Is there a bank in the Constitution? I mean, we, we know that the people at the convention have very different views about that. Or on, or on lesser-known provisions, there's this moment where a, a founder from uh, Rufus King got up in, at, at the Philadelphia convention and said, can anyone tell me what direct taxation means in the Constitution? <laughs> and then Madison records that no one answered the gentleman. I mean, yeah, you know, good, this is like good, with, with yeah. every law. But the key thing to me is, and, and we know the founders, I mean, once the Constitution took effect, they were fighting over everything. I mean, the balance of power between Congress and the president over foreign affairs, over taxation, over free speech, they, they themselves fell out. I mean, Hamilton and Madison write the fellows together, but then they, they, they go toe-to-toe on every issue once the Constitution is yeah. in practice. Yeah. So the That's key to me point. seems to... The key to me seems to enter into these questions in the same spirit as the founders. I mean, we look to what they said, but often you will find that there's no clear answer or that it will, you, you have a Jefferson arrayed against a Washington. But if we enter into these fights in the same spirit of patriotism and learning, the same intensity, that's what they would have, I think, wanted for us. Let me put you on the spot for today. Um, who's closer to it? Republicans or Democrats, liberals or conservatives, who's closer to what the Constitution means? Well, um, I think that both parties are within the range of legitimate disagreement. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things I found was that you know it's very it's very hard to know what I've, I've I found it, I find it hard to ventriloquize them, but I, I find I can't think of any yeah, federal sure. initiative that a, a Hamilton would have disagreed with. I mean, would, have Ham, would Hamilton have been against Obamacare? I mean, Hamilton had almost like no no. No truck with with states or states' powers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, you know the hero of of the Democratic Party, Jefferson, would have been horrified. But this is one of these weird things: how constitutional interpretation of politics never line up. I mean, Jefferson was the icon of the of the minimal state. I mean, he thought when we had two thousand or three thousand federal employees that things were getting a little bit out of hand with government bloat. But 
then, of course, FDR, the great state builder, was the one that built the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. Like, that was FDR's yeah. hero. Yeah. And it's just funny how that works out. Yeah. Do you find it funny, too, that uh, the last poll I saw, I don't know if you've seen any, you know, who was uh, most responsible for uh, the government we have and the Constitution? Uh, the last poll I saw said Jefferson. And that um, an awful lot of people, we were talking about this years ago, think Jefferson was there in Philadelphia. He wasn't, right? No, nope, he was abroad, and yeah. um, clearly, and he was clearly sort of, abroad, yeah, really abroad. And he, I mean, he had Jefferson had some pretty eccentric views on constitutionalism. He would, he would sort of, he would sort of uh, send them past Madison, and he'd say something like, "Hey, Madison, don't you think every constitution should only last nineteen years? Then we have a new one." Madison's like, "Well, you know, the problem with that is that everything will become pretty chaotic, and so it may, it may, it may be a good thing that." Yeah. Jefferson wasn't there, but it's, I agree. Jefferson I think he was. Is, he's an interesting character. He's an interesting right. character because he gets so much credit for so much, even though in practice, you know, a guy like Hamilton was far more responsible for the America we have yeah. than Jefferson and a Madison. I got to throw it. And, and, a, Ma- <laughs> and, and a Madison and a James Wilson for <laughs> your, yeah. for your, for your view. But yeah, but I, I've always thought it's because you know we're kind of a romantic people and jefferson was the poet you know we needed madison and wilson those guys for the prose you know to get down to the serious work here but the writing of the declaration is doesn't john adams say you know jefferson you're the guy to do this isn't isn't it a kind of a sign yeah. to him because he's the kind of poet laureate of the founders yeah he was the most soaring and eloquent founder yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah. and what he did was he said he said so many great things uh, he's endlessly quotable. He expressed so many convictions that we have. And he's, he's, he's endlessly quotable by both the left and the right. He's kind of like Tocqueville in that way. At the same time, when you see how he actually governed, you know, the record is far more mixed. I mean, the, per, the, personal, the personal record is far more mixed. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, sure. just to take, you know, like in a State of the Union speech, I mean, presidents of either party, they get up and they will talk about, how robust and far-flung our military is, how carefully they're watching our economy, how, how our trade is growing. These were these were Hamilton's obsessions, and at least two of those things were Jefferson's nightmares. I mean, the yeah. idea of, like, a big standing <laughs> army across the world and, like, extensive trade and D.C., you know, yeah. controlling the, yeah. the economy. This, this, yeah. He would have thought that's, like, a lost country. Yeah. So we, we quote Jefferson, but we follow Hamilton. That's good. Joseph Tartakovsky, thank you. Uh, I think what I really like about this book is you start at the beginning, but you go up to the to the present, at least close to the present, with uh, my, my friend, I think I can say good friend, my poker partner, at least, uh, Antonin Scalia. And um, very nice, very nice. Nicely done. Good for you. And, boy, your reviews are great. Congratulations, Joe. Thank you so much, Bill. That was Joseph Tartakovsky, author of The Lives of the Constitution, Ten Exceptional Minds That Shaped America's Supreme Law. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you for listening. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. We're doing a lot of stuff these days. And you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We will catch up next week. Please be there. Please be there.